addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, it's just how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. Okay, hi. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Shannon. How are you? I'm doing really good. Yeah, Great. I'm really happy to see you. I'm really happy to see you, too. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So we were um, beginning to kind of talk a little bit about all things recovery, and I thought, oh, I, I should pause us, go back, and start recording this podcast. So I know it's a little interrupting of our flow here, but um, I did want to just kind of, for the people who are listening, just to introduce you and say hello and good morning. And um, maybe you could take us a little bit through how you first arrived to uh, meditation practice and Dharma practice and a little bit of the question of what chicken or the egg, was it Dharma first or recovery first? All right. I'm happy to share. Yeah. Um, So um, I got sober um, in September 13th, 1998. And um, my journey was, uh, you know, a basic train wreck, as many people's journeys are. And um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do without having alcohol. It was a defining factor and feature in my life. So I went, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I went to my first AA meeting. It was at Grace Cathedral um, in San Francisco in the basement. And I went in and I uh, listened and watched and um, just judged the whole thing pretty significantly. Um, Heard things that sounded... I'm going to guess the judgment was, this isn't for me, this is... Yeah. Okay. There was like, so it's sort of like, this sounds like a pity party, Um, you know, I... I related to some of the things that I was hearing. Um, I, I got tripped up on, you know, God and God as I understand God. And, and I, but yet I was curious and desperate. So in my desperation, AA was my, was, I just kept going to meetings. That was the first thing that I did. I've got to just keep going. And even though I don't have anything to, I don't relate per se. I was, I was, again, I was thinking of myself as very separate and very different than the people that I was seeing talking about their journey in alcohol. Now, um, while yet, you were going, were you able to keep some abstinence or were you continuing yes, to drink? No, I've never, I, yeah, I was, you know, by the grace of practice, I have, don't, I don't, I haven't had a drink in what is it been? 20, almost 23 years, 20, 23 years, Beautiful, 1998. Yeah. I can't do the math at the moment, <laughs> but long time. Yes. So I was able to um, string together um, some sobriety. And in fact, I, I was asked to get a, you know, they said they recommended getting a sponsor. And so I found a woman who had um, two months more than I did. And she also didn't gravitate towards the program. So she was my sponsor. I was like, well, you've got, two months more than I do. So maybe we should just hang out together and talk about our life together and go through the steps. So that's how we became, you know, now we're just lifetime friends and still have this sweet relationship. And so how did meditation get introduced? So um, I just, I was looking around because I, again, that wasn't gravitating towards um, the AA module And so I was, I don't know how it came to be quite honestly, but I found out about a retreat that was happening. Uh, It was a, um, like a weekend retreat at Green Gulch Farm. Uh, It's a Zen center that's affiliated with San Francisco Zen Center. And they were doing like a weekend meditation retreat. And I just thought, okay, well, I'll just go and check that out. I'll go and, you know, get over to Marin. I'll borrow a car and 
that'll be nice. I'll just check this out. Maybe this is the way. So I went and the teacher, um, he's a beautiful man and I still follow him uh, as a guiding teacher. Uh, Norman Fisher was the teacher of the retreat that day. And um, that's good fortune. Right. So I sat down, you know, and this and in, if anyone's familiar with Zen or has ever uh, toyed with that practice, it's there's a lot of form. So there's a lot of formal like there's a particular way of walking into the Zendo, which is the community meditation space. Um, you face the wall, your eyes are open, your hands are cupped like there was a form. And so. But I preferred the form over the dialogue that I was hearing at AA. So I was like, okay, I'll just be open to this. So I was sitting um, and, you know, was my, I think, the first time that I had ever sat in meditation. And everything, you know, it was just my mind, you know, wanting to get enlightened. It's like, okay, maybe I'll just get enlightened and then I'll be done with all of this hell of sobriety. I've been here Um, for 20 minutes. Where's my enlightenment? Exactly, exactly. Well, after, um, you know, they had a sitting period, a break, and then another sitting period, and then a Dharma talk. And, you know, all this is totally new to me. Well, Norman, he uh, started talking about craving. And my ears just perked up and it was like, wow, craving and how the practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation is that our suffering is rooted in our craving and the experience in my body, I can still remember it was a deep leaning forward, like Oh, yes, I get that. I know a lot about craving. And so the, that talk um, had me keep showing up. So, and really it's to really start to look at, you know, I started to sit more and start looking at all the areas in which I have been clinging to my alcoholism my identity around alcoholism, uh, how it defined who I am, all, and then not only the craving of, of that particular addiction of alcohol, but also how it played out in my body image and craving to look a particular way, how it played out in my consumption of, of uh, like shopping and material possessions and that craving and how all of these things were pulling me and all of it was you know based on this very fundamental practice of understanding suffering and the cause of suffering as craving or clinging and it was just so incredibly eye-opening for me so that became um that became the route i would drop in to AA meetings as sort of as a social network because I I didn't know how to be in the world and socialize. But then my social network became more um, aligned with practitioners. And so that became, and then my practice deepened and I moved away from Zen and I started uh, doing these 10 day uh, retreats um, they're Go- Goanka retreats. So they're based in California or, or actually uh, Goanka isn't. He's uh, from India. But um, I started doing these 10-day retreats and going deeper into my practice. At the same time, realizing I, my, my, this mind is, a, is just a junkyard. So I started to go to therapy along with practicing meditation because it was just, you know, I don't know who said this, but it's sort of like, you know, you don't want to go into your mind alone. Like it's better to go, go with a friend. So my friend was my 20, I have this relationship with a therapist now for 20, 23 years. Um, And 
she and I have journeyed together on uncovering the roots of, uh, of really this long conditioned pattern of drinking in my entire family lineage and sort of getting to that and healing it from a, a place that's uh, that feels much deeper in my body. Yeah. So that is in essence, the, the start of my journey. Um, and it continues to be, you know, since uh, my life changed completely, my life changed completely. Um, as you hear in the rooms of AA, as you hear in any recovery group, your life changes completely when you find, oh, I think, some deep acceptance of what it was and what it is now. Yeah, I mean, I love what you're saying as far as the helpfulness of having a guide walk you through the terrain of your mind, understanding the deep-rooted conditioning from coming from a family with alcoholism, um, and looking at our our deep human nature to have this biological feature of craving and the unsatisfactory of that um, and the the myth of thinking that that formula might work one day if I could just blank then I would be happy you know um, so it's really quite beautiful to hear you unpack that um, one of the yeah. yeah one of the things I am curious about you did mention you know fellowship and um, having this community being an important aspect of your early part of sobriety and I'm curious it sounds like you still have a relationship with the sponsor their close friend that uh, is walking the path with you as well as the therapist that you've been in long relationship with but what other fellowship do you have uh, Mm. that is specific to recovery or has that just become a dharma community how do you hold that well it's both because i can't you know, Lisa, the alcoholic, is not separate from Lisa, the practitioner. So it's sort of like the community of my, I think what's so interesting is that um, even though I have relationship with folks and people that I was in the AA program with, and I have, I have a, a deeper relationship, a more intimate relationship with people that I sat with in silence. So there's an intimacy that happens in silence that um, it's rich and it's hard to describe, but there's, um, you know, as we practice, there's that peeling away of all of the ways in which we identify with this body and this mind and this look and, and, you know, how I want to be perceived by you and, um, and as we start to peel that away, there's there. My experience has been a deep, like a softening, a real softening, so that true relationship is possible. Like I feel like I, my relationship to practitioners and friends in Dharma is rich because I'm showing up with my whole self. And not just the stories that have defined who I am. Or used to be. Those are my stories, you know. And and I'm not, like, a lot of people in, in practice are also in recovery of some sort. You know, remember that we're talking about clinging and craving. It doesn't have to be that the clinging and craving is alcohol or drugs, It could be that you're addicted to sex or that you've had or addicted to poor relationship choices or addicted to being alone because you know what? The rest of you guys are crazy, you know, (laughs) so it could be. And so just to realize and to start to see clearly, this is where I crave and to communicate that and to own it, like to really fold it in. I feel like, Mindfulness practice, meditation practice, 
it's like we're digesting our life. We're, we're giving room for it to be in our bodies. We're not trying to get rid of it. Like, and that's something that's taken, you know, it's a gradual path. It's taken a while for me to learn that. I don't, you know, for a long time, I didn't want to be identified like, oh yeah, I'm not a, yeah, yes, I'm an alcoholic, but that's not who I am. I'm all these other things as well. But there's something about that real true acceptance. Like, yeah, this is the, this was the conditioning that was made me who I am and I'm, and I'm digesting it. It has room to live in this body of mine and there's no shame associated with it. There's only understanding and, and love. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Now, how did you get into teaching? So you, you're, um, at what point did you decide? Yeah, I want to, I want to share this. So it was interesting. I started actually teaching yoga um, shortly after I got sober, because that I, when I was sitting in meditation and started in practicing actually in the um, Goenka tradition, which is the the Theravada or the um, the insight meditation tradition, that tradition resonated more with me because there was such a focus on being in the body. Um, not to say that Zen is not also focused in that way, but it's, it's just slightly different. There's just a different point of entry. And um, so being in the body um, was a new experience for me because alcohol took me out of my body. Drugs took me out of my body. Like I was just disembodied for so long. So my entry point with meditation was to, I mean, I was meditating as my own personal practice, but then doing a physical practice would help to sort of, again, that integration and that digestion. Um, it was like, there was a lot of stale energy that needed movement. So I got started with teaching yoga, um, boy, and I think that was 1999, maybe 2000. It's hard. Dates are spinny for me at the moment, but early on. And um, then I just was a practitioner for many years. I don't even remember when I started teaching. I want to say that it was not until uh, like mid 2000s. I, and I was interested in, and a friend of mine asked me to, to create a Dharma group. And so that's what I did. I created a sitting group. And it started that way. And I think that, um, you know, it just became my relationship with my own conditions um, feels sort of impersonal. It's, you know, I'm not too identified with it. And something in the way in which I was sharing with others um, Became an, it, there became an invitation to share just in my small community of friends. And so that's kind of how it came to be. It really, um, I started teaching more in the secular realm. Uh, so I, I felt like I needed some formal training, but I didn't think that, you know, when the insight uh, meditation uh style came to the United States, some of the founders in the very beginning, they didn't really share the Buddhism. They shared the, they shared the mindfulness right? because people would get really turned off by the Buddhism. And so my path was to actually educate myself um, on the secular realm. So I studied, um, gosh, Again, like I said, dates. I'm trying to figure out dates. It's on my website. <laughs> uh, I, was, <laughs> I studied with, um, at the UCLA's uh, Center for uh, Mindful Awareness. And that was my getting that sort of formal education or credentialing that I thought was necessary to be a teacher. Um, just and, and really entered in through the secular realm. So started teaching children and at schools 
and like moving in more towards a secular practice, all the while studying with teachers, you know, building and cultivating relationships with, you know, Insight Meditation Center. Gil Fransdahl is a big influence for me. Maintaining my relationship with Norman Fisher. Um, I was also living in Berkeley for many years because, again, the miracle of this, you know, of sobriety and really the practice, I ended up at, you know, I think I was 32. No. Again, dates get a little fuzzy. Um, I got sober at 28. I'm 52 now. So somewhere in between there, I went <laughs> and I, 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 would, I got my GED. Mm-hmm. And then I got accepted to UC Berkeley and got my undergraduate degree. That would not have happened yeah. had it not been for getting sober, finding a path. I think it's so important to find a path that resonates mm-hmm. For each of us, like it doesn't matter if it's, you know, yoga or Qigong or meditation or listening to music or doing art, a path Mm -hmm. to presence, you know, get on the path to presence and miracles happen. Now, when you're teaching, are you pretty open about your own recovery? And how do you integrate that into, you know, your, your Dharma teachings? Oh boy. I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think that's why people come and participate in practice because I am, um, an open, you know, I think that I got a, again, one of my teachers recommended years ago to, um, to share the, uh, share the scar and not the wound. Mm. And so I've taken that, quite seriously. And I have shared all of my scars and there's, and, you know, we're all, you know, in this, in this vocation, this hobby that we do where we bring people together. Um, it's, I feel like if I, in sharing my, my soul and myself and my journey, somebody out there, will be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I get that too. So it's, I'm very transparent. Um, I think that's, um, people love it when I tell personal stories. I don't as much because I want to, um, I teach in a way that wants, I stay very true to the way in which it was laid out in the Buddhist text. I find that that for me and my style, it's important that I stay true to the way in which the Buddhist text advises for teachers to be. And there's a particular sutta, the Udayi Sutta, that lays it out. You know, this is the way, this is the way in which you can teach to be effective. Um, So, but personal stories come in, you know, it's, it's important that people know my journey. Like my, my mother died from alcoholism. Yeah, just this year. And she took her life because of the suffering and my father lifetime of alcoholism also passed away this last year, not from alcoholism per se, but this is like this lineage. I have had this lineage of, of alcoholism in my life and that's my conditioning. That's, and so to see it into just, again, there's that digesting of it that real deep integration of it. It's, it's been so important for my journey. Yeah. And it's pretty fresh right now, the death of your mom. So I know you're really in the throes of grief and I'm, I know grief is all over the map and it doesn't have a timetable or a specific recipe that it's going to follow. How are you using the practice to kind of keep your, um, grief available and true, but also maintain the roles that you have of showing up and educating your son and being a partner and being a teacher and moving forward on a day-to-day basis. So um, my practice is my North Star. It's what I do. I get up. I have a cup of tea and I go and I sit and I 
see what comes. I can't imagine uh, navigating this particular period of time in our society with COVID, the suicide of my mother, the death of my father, the new puppy that my son got as a result of of a weak parenting moment in the midst of grief. Um, you know, all of it, this full catastrophe living, as John Kabat-Zinn says, you know, it is a lot easier to navigate um, with practice. It provides space, just a little bit of space. And I need that space. I am of the constitution to be reactive, to be adversive, to be confrontational. That is part of how I survived. And all of that can be there. But the difference is that I am not continually reacting from it. Now, it's not to say that I don't. It's just that I have, I have pause. I know how to take pause. I see what's happening in the level of my body and in my emotions, and I can stop and I can breathe, and I can name, I am really angry right now. And right now is not the time to make a decision. And it can be that simple. It's just that moment of clear seeing. So my practice is, you know, there is no distinction between practice and life. It is just simply what I do to get, uh, when I get up in the morning, so that I can actually be available for myself and for my family. And we, you know, it's not, it, I wanna just stress how important it is to be available to ourselves. You know, I sit in meditation and I hold my own hand. I hold my own hand because you know what? Life is hard, it's difficult. And so I can hold my own hand and therein lies just a little bit of stability. Just, and that's enough. It's enough. So that's, uh, I hope that answers your question, you know. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love the imagery of holding your own hand. And I, I do believe that's result of decades of cultivating that ability to care for ourselves, um, things that we would think about as far as compassion or metta, the equanimity practice. You know, I think what you're explaining as far as this integrated way in which you live is also a result of some formal practice in these different Brahma Viharas where you really just are able to respond with such a caring um, behavior it's not just a frame of mind but truly like just even the simple thought uh, or action of I'm going to hold my own hand because I need someone to care for me right now and I need to feel that Uh, it's a beautiful image and um, I'm touched by your practice and I think what you're um, going through is must be so difficult. I know my parents also have alcoholism and addiction and to grow up watching that uh, is very difficult. And we have all of those conditionings that arrive, but it's hard as an adult when we actually have some understanding of what they're truly suffering. And to watch that play out for them is a very difficult um experience and as a mother knowing everything that I want for my child to know how shameful that must be for our parents to not be able to provide that so just the layers and layers of uh, suffering deep deep suffering and when you can kind of see through that and not take it personal and not believe the story and not want it to be different to just see it suffering deep deep suffering on all ends through the whole spectrum um, makes it easier to respond well so I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about my mom and the way in which um, you know she took her life and she her blood alcohol level was three or four times over the legal limit so she was in a she was not 
in a clear state of mind. She was not in her right mind. And so as we look at addiction and alcoholism, um, and then we look at it from the view of practice, when we're starting the practice, it doesn't feel like we're in our right mind, but eventually it's the only, like the mind that we were living in with our alcoholism, with our addiction, with our craving, with our wanting, that's, you know, it's just so entangled in suffering. It's so entangled in suffering. And so to, you know, I guess I just want to express to anyone that's listening to this, that, you know, that this practice brings about clear seeing. There's so much, you know, my intent as a teacher is to share my wisdom, but I share my delusion too, because it's so embedded in my wisdom. I can't always see clearly, but, but what's so beautiful is that we start to, uh, that ability to see where we're completely not seeing, it comes and it's it's really it's incredibly humbling right it's like uh when we think about right view sometimes early on we can think we're gonna arrive to a place where we see the truth capital t when we see things the way they are and actually it's quite humbling to realize that right view is exactly what you're explaining it's actually understanding that we'll never know and having the humility of like this is what i see through my conditions uh, this is how I think things are, and that uh, um, you know, acting forward with the best possible intention, yeah. um, you know, and then having a commitment to continue on the path so that our view can be, you know, purified, if you will, which is a difficult word, but continue to be um, yeah. refreshed. And, uh, well, that's the digestion piece. Yes. So what you're saying is sort of like the purification. I feel like it's just making room for it in our body. We have to just digest it. We have to let it have its life. Because if it has its life, then it can it can move on. Right. It can have space. But it can't have space if we don't digest it. I think the, that, yeah, I think purification is something to grapple with, is an idea. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a big subject, you know, how do you... Um, work with grief on a daily basis and how do you keep your own recovery uh, fresh and uh, available I'm curious through all of this have you have there ever been a has there ever been a juncture in which you were like I really just thinking about drinking or using um in my life, yes. Recently, no. So what I'm working with right now in my grief with the loss of my mom is um, immediately I had such absolute hatred towards alcohol and alcoholism. Like I hated it. There was such hate for this destroying drug that I chose, that my mother chose, that my father chose, that their parents chose. Like this, you know, it's like that glass of wine or that little bottle of wine that she was drinking, hating alcohol, hating it. And so just, I'm in process with that hate at the moment, like really just sort of like, yeah, that's a process. In my, yeah, in my years of being sober, there has been times, yeah, there's absolutely been times where I thought it'd be nice to have a glass of wine with this meal or, you know, using sherry to cook with and burning off the alcohol and smelling the alcohol and, and having the sensation of my mouth watering. It scares me. It scares me because, um, because of my, what happened to my mother, but just watching her deteriorate from alcohol over my lifetime and to see that, you know what, I'm, I'm just like her. 
there's there's this really clear understanding when it comes to alcohol. There's no real justification of where I'm going to go with it. I'm going to do it to the extreme because I do everything to the extreme. You know, not only am I a practitioner, but I, I teach meditation and Dharma practice because I learn that way. That's how I learn. I go to the extreme. I've got to do this practice every day because if I don't do this practice every day, no one's going to like me and my family and I'm probably not going to like myself very much. Yeah. So it's sort of like, so I'm knowing this about myself that I'm going to this, you know, it doesn't take, I don't have to look very far to be reaffirmed that I can't go down that road. That That's road been one of the beautiful parts for me, you know, looking at the fifth precept, for example, you know, when I get into the debate of, you know, God, I've been sober 26 years, I was so young, my life is so different, you know, it's my mind can journey into those escapades of what would it be like it's been nice to not have to go through the negotiation of is it a disease or isn't it a disease or will it happen or won't it happen and to sometimes just rely on the fifth precept and for me because I have an abstinence practice the way that I interpret it is pretty black and white Um, I know there's lots of room for gray and that's just my personal practice but in instances like that it's been nice for me to kind of just back into like well you know this was one of the teachings of the Buddha and he felt it was important and um, you know in order to maintain mindfulness like you said and to be able to clear have a right view of what I'm doing this feels like a necessary thing for me to adhere to yeah Yeah. I mean just the idea of my mind is already clouded over with my own uh, you know greed and my own uh, aversion and my own, you know, uh, delusion. And so knowing that those are always clouding the mind, I can't imagine adding another coloring of the mind over that. And that's basically what drugs and alcohol do for me. You know, I think that there is, uh, yeah, I understand that there are, there are people that need to have medication, you know, because, they've been medicating with alcohol and then all of a sudden you take that away and there might be some underlying issues that need to be met. That's one thing. Like, so abstinence, but I, I'm with you on that, Shannon. Like there's abstinence is the path that I've chosen. And I, I adhere to the fifth precept as well. It's absolutely like, it's not, this is my North star and I'm not going to veer away from and, and justify any, you know, behavior that, will only cause harm to myself and to others. Like, I really believe very deeply that the point of all of this on some level is to be safe for myself and for others. You know, on some level, practice makes me a safe person to be with, makes me able to hold my own hand. There's a part of me that is, you know, I think in the in the twelve step programs, you know, to putting your your faith, your your trust in something that's higher than yourself. Higher than myself is awareness. <laughs> awareness is high because if I leave it to this mind, it's it's just not going to go well. <laughs> Now, as a teacher, if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in trying to get abstinent or I'm having this difficulty or there's some deep suffering around substances or behavior, um, you know, I know a little bit of your story now, but, you know, having started in the 12-step arena, but from what I understand, no longer using that as a recovery base, how would you or what do you recommend for people who are trying to enter abstinence from behavior or substance? Well, um, what first comes to mind is having community. So likely I would send them to you and Dave because this is your arena of expertise. I mean, granted, I have experience in this and I can open doors and suggest ideas and be a a a person that will show love and compassion and be available. Like that is what I can do personally. But then it's so 
critical to have community. You know, in the teachings of the Buddha, he, you know, it was the, the three jewels of practice are this awake nature in ourselves, the Buddha nature, you know, um, the, the Dharma or the, the teachings, the truth of reality and the Sangha. And the, that's a jewel. It's right there. It's not less than or, or higher than the Sangha, the, the community of practitioners. That community has really been, um, it's, there's no distinction between Buddha Dharma and Sangha. They're all equal. And it's so necessary on the sobriety, like on the road to sobriety to have even just one person. Remember, for the longest time in AA, I had one person that had two months longer in sobriety than I have. And, and my friend Anne, she's still in my life today. You know, we still, we, we got sober together. So it's, you know, and it was just one person. I can't, that she's the only one from, from, that AA community, but then in my in the Dharma community, there's countless people, countless people that I can pick up the phone and say I'm suffering, and they'll hear me. Not try to change it. Which that's so beautiful about this type of community that we have that you're cultivating, that I'm cultivating. There's nothing wrong. Suffering right. is inherent. There's right. nothing wrong with suffering. But to make room for it, to hear other people express it. This is what the practice is about, to be able to see it, to name it. And then once you get the fire of it, you know, released, where am I clinging? Mm-hmm. Where am I holding? You know, and then we start to investigate. But first, we just have to be with it. This sucks. And I don't want this anymore. <laughs> and, you know, and just yeah. to get clear. And then be like, okay, and so let's investigate. What is this? What is the suck? Yeah, what is the suck? (laughs) And then can I I let it go? Can I lessen it a little bit? How do I lessen it? Our resource is our body and our breath. That's how we lessen it, right? That's how we lessen it. And then it lets us go or we let it go. Because if we give it room, you know, I think it's people get hung up on the idea of letting go. And I, what's interesting in my experience with letting go is that the, the conditions, we set up the conditions for letting go by letting things really be, mm. letting them lessen through breath, through awareness, just, okay, can I, can I let go of this suck? Can I let go of the suck a little bit? Can I open my tight fist and and let my palm open a little bit around it? And as soon as you open that palm and let give it some breathing room, it lets go of us. So yeah, that's been my experience. Yeah, I love that. I I often think of it as cooperation. Cooperating with the way things are and then dealing with it. You know, what is actually happening? What is the suck? How do I let it be? Um, you know, instead of, of trying to get rid of it or craving for something to replace it. And usually the longer I fight, the longer it stays. You know, the sooner I can go, oh, this is actually the way things are right now. Then it gives me some clear uh, path forward. Well, and that's why what, you know... Uh, what you and Dave are doing is so important for people right now. I feel like um, we need to be able to name what sucks. Yeah. You know, the, the causes of our, like, okay, so it's sort of like, this is why I want to drink. This is why I want to use. This is like all of the reasons. There's endless causes and conditions for the reasons for us to pick up. Yeah. But when you were in community and there's agreement that, yeah, you know what, there's, I'm not going to try to fix or change your experience. I'm not going to go and tell you to read this chapter of the big book. Right. I'm going to just, you know, let's just hold space. Yeah, the great myth of that if you're sober, then any quote unquote negative emotion or experience is your fault. 
right? And really demystifying that, taking that out and saying, no, you're, you're not immune from the human experience just because you're not using a coping mechanism. You know, you just don't have the coping mechanism, but you're still going to have the full spectrum life, you know, or full catastrophe living. Um, And so really kind of cultivating a tolerance and a way of relating to life that's actually going to be satisfactory and sustainable over the long term. I think that's what practice and meditation and dharma and studying and close friends and that's what those things help us do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was just when you were sharing um, about not being, you know, not blaming yourself and finding fault within ourselves. It reminded me of one of my teachers at Spirit Rock. Uh, his name is Wes Nisker. He was, you know, he famously would say to our, our Dharma community there when I was in uh, practicing at Spirit Rock, you know, you are not your fault. And that really resonated with me. You are not your fault. There's a lot of causes and conditions that make up who we are. And to just keep on remembering that, like, I'm not my fault. Like, and that, so that's, you know, that practice of remembering that and holding my own hand, that's enough. You know, it doesn't have to be a grand, you know, enlightenment to me is just seeing clearly more and more the ways in which I'm deluded. That's like to me that that's enough. It's like, oh, here I go again. Here I go again. Yeah, sometimes I think of enlightenment as developing a sense of humor. Totally. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. Yeah. I know. That's, that's well, Lisa, going. you're you're now in Colorado. So for those people who might be listening, do you want to maybe I know this is a little funny, but maybe give a little pitch on like where you're teaching and how people could get in sure. touch with you because yeah. you're a beautiful resource just as a Dharma teacher a meditation teacher, but I think also, you know, woman in recovery with long-term, you know, sobriety and abstinence practice and full catastrophe living, um, you know, that's a resource that's, I think, incredibly important. Um, I know that I often get questions of, you know, why aren't, how do I find women in recovery that have a Buddhist practice? And can show me, you know, kind of how to get started and where to go and map it out for me. And obviously, there's no one size fits all, but you're an incredible resource. And I'd love people to be able to find you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, because of the conditions that we're living in, I'm teaching on Zoom. Um, The nonprofit that I started here in the Roaring Fork Valley in Colorado is called Roaring Fork Insight. Um, there are some audio dharma there if people are interested in listening to um, a talk on various subjects before joining our meditation group. There's three groups. Um, I teach um, in the mornings on Tuesday and Thursday from 7 to 7.45, and we sit for 30 minutes, and then there's a short uh, a short teaching and where we go a little bit deeper into uh, Buddhist dharma. And right now we're... Um, Right now, we're, we're going through the myth of the life of the Buddha. So it's really kind of fun. It's a fun um, exploration because, you know, myths sometimes can actually, there's jewels within the myth that resonate with our life. And then on the Wednesday group, that's at 8 a.m. And that's, again, just a, a little deeper dive, a longer Dharma talk, but still the 30-minute sit followed by a Dharma talk. And um, always there's, we have uh, questions and answers or or just simply community connection at the end of each practice period uh, because it's about community. And our, our little community has grown in numbers and more practitioners are coming. And it's really, uh, it's really special for me to see that this is really, I, I you know, Roaring Fork Insight was, uh, it came out of me needing community when we moved here to Colorado. And now there's community. I have community in practice and I feel so incredibly grateful for that. And it's, it's astonishing to see people from all over the country coming to practice in the morning now. And, um, you know, there's a, there's some beautiful things that are coming out of COVID. It's hard to see them at times, but 
that's what I'm up to. Um, and I, you know, welcome anybody that's new. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just so encouraged by what you and, and Dave are doing, Shannon. It's, it's so great that you're just over the pass and we're here together, you know, making, spreading the word on these practices and, and helping people find some ease in their life. Yeah, well, I can't wait to be able to see you and the family again and meet that cute dog. Uh, she just got a beautiful lab and it's cuteness overload. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, the puppy mind, the puppy training. I know that's difficult, but congratulations on the new it's puppy. It's good. I think that and I, can, I, I get wait to see we can myself see and the puppy and all of that, like, <laughs> delusion. There's so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll put the information on your classes and where to reach you um, on our description on the podcast. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your heart. I know, especially just about the, you know, the suffering specific to alcoholism and being a child of an alcoholic and, you know, the tragedy that you're walking through right now with your mother. Um, I appreciate you sharing that so openly. It's difficult, and but necessary for people to hear and understand that we can really do anything with our practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm very grateful that you um, that you reached out and wanted to kind of hear about my journey. Um, it's really special to share it, and uh, I hope my hope is always that um, it's helpful. You know, it's helpful. it was helpful to me today. So I'm, yeah, I keep it pretty small and simple. <laughs> yeah. One person at a time. Well, thank you, Lisa. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and close up our podcast and thank you so much. All right. Addiction is not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a moral failure. It's not an ethical lapse. It's not a weakness of character. It's not a failure of will, which is how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering.